Pod. 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 Welcome back to Say Who Say Pod. He's Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Capel. Back from vacation. I hope you missed us. I hope you didn't miss us too much, but I hope you missed us a little bit. Danny, have you ever fed a giraffe? No, I haven't. It's pretty fun. Like I, I was. A, where did you feed a giraffe at? At the uh, at the Living Desert Zoo in I believe the zoo itself is in Palm Desert, uh, California. Um, we flew down there, visited my aunt for a few nights. It was a very fun trip. Um, and I, they, you can you can buy lettuce like four or five pieces of lettuce at a time to feed to the giraffes. The giraffes walk right up and take it right from you very gently. So I, I was excited for our daughter, our three-year-old daughter uh, to experience it. And she had a lot of fun, but um, it was giraffes are one of those animals that kind of break the brain. They're so huge with the big long necks. And it's almost like it's hard for me to like wrap my head around that. That's a real animal. Does the black tongue freak you out? Um, no, because I, I feel like it's one of those facts you learn really mm-hmm. young because it's just like so weird. Like, did you know giraffes have black tongues? So um, my dog has a black tongue. Really? Yeah. Sharpay uh, and the I mean, purebred Sharpay are, are known for having a purplish or black tongue. Um, so do I believe Akitas as well. Maybe Chow's also. Not but yeah. That. So Simba, I've got now we've had four Sharpay and I would say two have had like legitimately black or purple tongues and simba the one we have right now is is one of those and some it freaks some people out they think it's like zombie tongue it's 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 a little weird to see it in person and you i could tell like ruby wanted me to she was excited to you know little kids are she was excited to do it but then like when the, the giraffe's right there like she wanted me to do it first a couple times but then she you know jumped right in grabbed a piece of lettuce and she was very i think very amused that the the giraffe would take food right out of her hand. Um, they had a baby giraffe too that they just they just got, but it was uh, its first day in public was had not come yet, so we didn't get to see oh, the baby giraffe. Man, I, this might totally be the result of Toys R Us marketing, but I always think of giraffe giraffes as very gentle animals. I mean, they just they eat leaves. They seem very pleasant. I don't imagine. I don't imagine a giraffe being ill-tempered. I, I see them as as very as very benign and gentle creatures. Yeah, certainly the ones at the uh, the Living Desert Zoo came off that way. Just come over and reach their you know, reach their head over, looking around. Who's okay? Who's got the lettuce? You know, gonna gonna chow down. So, I also believe they're the source of one of my favorite uh, rap lyrics a bar from Lil Wayne who once discussed being high as giraffe ass <laughs> it's a good it's a good line <laughs> it's not bad but we need to get it so ruby who is who is 3 she she had her first plane ride and i i need to know i need to know how it went did you pay extra for, so that so that she could yell uh well we didn't need to there was no yelling there no was no kidding uh, there was only contented uh, snack-filled silence. She she did amazingly well. Um, you know, every every little kid's gonna get a little fidgety uh, from time to time, but she, I mean, she loved it. First of all, she you know wasn't freaked out by the the loud engine at takeoff or landing, and like looking out the window and seeing uh, pointed at the Tacoma Dome from the ground as we were uh, we were coming home. The really the most important landmark. Uh, for any any trip over our, our our fine city here the 253 um no yeah did it both ways and it you know helped on the way home we did have the disney plane that had mickey and and all the oh, disney characters yeah. on it so she was excited about that um and that might be the one thing she remembers the most from the trip was just flying <laughs> on the the mickey plane on the way home she was pretty pretty fired up about it well since welcome back christian and since since you left i'm not sure if there've been too many landmark Things I believe the two most notable things were, I, I believe after we recorded, we found out that Chip Kelly was leaving his head coaching position at UCLA to become the offensive coordinator at Ohio State. And that was followed by the news, which doesn't really affect the Big Ten, but we all have a personal interest, is that Ryan Grubb is going to be the Seahawks' new offensive coordinator, which I'll admit took me by by quite a bit of surprise. I thought if 
I thought it was more likely that Chip Kelly would get that job than Ryan Grubb. But clearly, the Seahawks chose chose Grubb as opposed to Kelly. So when the rumors came out that oh, Chip Kelly's eyeing a return to the NFL, and it'll probably be, I mean, if he goes, almost certainly be as an offensive coordinator. I feel like that kind of reinforced the thought that, oh man, that guy really wants out of UCLA. That guy really doesn't want to be the head coach at UCLA anymore for him to to take a step back essentially and be a, an NFL play caller. And then um, he, he makes the play caller move to another school in the same conference that UCLA yeah. is going to, not even to the NFL. But to Ohio State to be, and I know that there's, you know, him and Ryan Day go way back, and he was the Ryan Day's mentor back in the day, and so there's a relationship there. But to be the offensive coordinator for an offensive head coach at Ohio State, very, very interesting. Uh, I, I think it's a, a boon for Ohio State. I mean, if Chip Kelly does nothing else well. He knows offense, and he's never coached talent like they're going to have um at ohio state so i'm very interested to see how that plays out but god how badly do you do you have to not want to be at your school anymore to take a coordinator job um at a what's going to be a conference rival or at least a another conference member i don't know how, how heated the rivalry will be between ucla and ohio state he must really hate recruiting right like that's that's the only thing i can see or he just thinks that ucla it's impossible for them to compete in in the Big Ten, given what their resources are like right now. There was uh, very little to suggest he doesn't hate recruiting from his time at UCLA. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't do a lot of it, <laughs> so at least from the high school level. I saw, I think he had 10 recruits for the class of 2024, and I'll give him credit. I mean, he basically was waiting to see if UCLA would fire him. And UCLA kind of stood pat and said, no, you're going to have to quit and saved themselves. I think it's eight and a half million dollars of what his buyout was by having him quit to take what is a, a clear step back in the coaching hierarchy. Yeah. So I, I wonder if Martin Jarmond is regretting that. Um, it seemed like he was basically done and that a lot of UCLA fans were more than willing to move on from him. Um, and you know, not to suggest Deshaun Foster won't work out or that it's like not fair to be skeptical of of that hire. I mean, just considering the the lack of head coach experience as you're headed to the Big Ten, but it kind of underscores maybe why they didn't move on from him because it's not like if you fire him, you've suddenly got access to all of the top candidates. Like I've heard, you know, people have speculated, well. You know, if Jonathan Smith had just held out a little bit and not jumped at Michigan State, he could have been the Washington head coach or he, you know, maybe he maybe if he were available, UCLA does move on Chip Kelly um, so they could go after Jonathan Smith. But I I just don't know that that's like a super desirable job, especially moving to the Big Ten. They're the um, they're they're the the one of the four schools joining from the Pac-12 who doesn't appear to have aligned their new conference affiliation with their investment in in football at least yet they're going to be getting a full share of the the media rights deal so maybe that helps but mm -hmm. like it kind of felt like you know at least the way they justified going to the Big 10 originally was that well like the athletics budget is ruined and we're going to have to cut sports if we don't do this you've seen a lot of reports kind of trickle out since Chip Kelly left that their NIL is not in a good place and they don't have a ton of support there i don't think there's a lot of institutional support behind improving that and it seems pretty obvious Chip Kelly was frustrated with that element of it too so i mean i like beyond just the actual move of of chip Kelly going to Ohio state. Like I got a lot of questions about UCLA's viability in the big 10 going forward, you know, forget about whether Deshaun Foster has the chops to win or not. Are they going to be able to recruit at a level to keep up in the big 10? Or are they going to kind of get left behind because they're not all in the decline of UCLA's football programs, probably the most surprising thing from the PAC 12, other than the collapse of the conference. That was, I mean, really, 99 even, that was still a nationally prominent program 
Yeah, Cade McNown was a Heisman finalist. There was a year that they were in conversation for for the national championship, and the the way that they've collapsed is is pretty is pretty astonishing. And I I did think I thought I thought if it came down to a Chip Kelly or Ryan Grubb choice, I thought the Seahawks would probably go with Kelly because of his NFL experience, and instead they went with Grubb, which man, you might have a better insight than anyone else about how he might fit at the pro level because it is, this is a, that's a move for the Seahawks that has home run potential, but it also could be an absolute, absolute failure. He's, he's been an offensive coordinator for five seasons, but he's always been the offensive coordinator beneath a head coach with an offensive background. There's, there's a ton of unknowns about him. Yeah. I mean, it's really handing him the keys, mm-hmm. right? I mean, com- yes. coming in as, as like you said, as the OC under a, a defensive head coach. Um, do you think that there are enough pro elements to Washington's offense that it's it's going to be a, a seamless transition? I know Grubb calls called there's their style a, a pro style spread, meaning um, they're going to be in three wide a lot, but they're also going to use the tight end. And it, you know, I I think they sort of resented this idea that they just throw it right and put a thousand yard rusher out there last year, had a couple games where they were really insistent about establishing the run and succeeded with it. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't see it as like an air raid coordinator going to the pros. They've, you know, grub has been, has really resisted that notion that there's, there's any similarities between what they do and, and the air raid, but, he he has only ever been a college coach, and it did kind of seem like that system was was tailor made to exploit college defenses. Yeah, the one I think I think that idea of pro versus college offenses and those being, I think that matters less than it used to. In in large part because you have quarterbacks that move now. That that was that was always the the thing that set NFL offenses apart is that they really didn't want quarterbacks running. They didn't want quarterbacks taking hits, and that's that's kind of gone away. I, I do what you mentioned about the tight end and how they use tight ends and is one of the things that clearly differentiates it from an an air raid offense, which is entirely about getting smaller, quicker players in space. I don't know enough about and how to project scheme to say like, hey, he runs something that can totally succeed in an NFL level. The the one thing that I would say is is most interesting, and this kind of reflects some of the fascination people increasingly have with Kyle Shanahan, is that if you look at the two quarterbacks or the last two quarterbacks that Ryan Grubbs worked with, Caleb Hayner or Jacob Hayner and and then Michael Penix, both of those guys have thrived in his system. And so one of the major appeals that I would see is that He's got an ability to maximize the strengths of his quarterback to to call and design an offense that that maximizes who he has rather than saying, I need a guy here that's going to run my scheme. I, I need a guy that can do these three things and he has to be able to do them every time or he has to be this big that that he's really got an ability, which I think is something that you're going to see the NFL move more toward about not, hey, I've got my super fancy uh, offense that works exactly this way. And I need the person who's the, the point man for it, as opposed to I'm going to be able to get the most out of whoever you play at corner at quarterback, because I didn't, I liked Hayner. I liked Jacob Hayner a lot. I certainly did not expect him. The, the fact that he became a fourth round pick is one of the most surprising things that I've seen in college football in the last three or four years. Do you think this makes them more likely to uh, take a swing at Michael Penix in the draft? For sure. It'll be really interesting to see where he gets picked. I can guarantee there are going to be some teams that don't have him as a draftable quarterback just because of his the the injury history. And I, I think that's silly and short-sighted, but that's you just have NFL teams that do it. Miles Jack, somebody that played years in the NFL, and you had teams that just didn't consider him Chris Polk. The same thing happened of guys just, Hey, his injury history makes it. 
I, I'd be really surprised if Penix goes in the first round, but yeah, I absolutely think it increases the likelihood that, that the Seahawks could pick Penix. It makes me wonder, like I, we know Ryan Grubb wants to be a head coach. I wonder if this is a move he made because one, it's, it's an NFL offensive coordinator job. Of course you're going to take it. Doesn't matter that you're the OC at Alabama now. This is, I mean, Seattle Seahawks and an OC job where, I mean, like, like we said, it's, it's your offense, right? I mean, it's, you're, you're not, you're not under a, a self-absorbed, bright, young offensive mind who is going to have his, his thumb all over it. Um, it's really for a first time NFL coordinator. It's like as attractive of a job as I can imagine someone like Ryan Grubb getting, right? Yes. Um, is there a thought for him that if I want to be a college head coach, this is a better path to it. I'll be on a higher stage. If I go to Seattle and turn the offense around or like immediately prove, look, this system that you all saw Kalen DeBoer and Ryan Grubb implemented a couple different stops over the last several seasons. It's just as effective at the NFL level. And Ryan Grubb is just as effective, if not more effective without Kalen DeBoer. He's independently successful. This guy should be a, a college head coach. Does he coach in the NFL and have that level of success and become an NFL head coaching candidate? Would he prefer that more? You know, with that. So that's what I'm fascinated about. Like, I, I feel like the question all along from Husky fans was, are they going to be able to hold on to Ryan Grubb for another year? Or is some high level group of five program going to hire him away as head coach is a, maybe mid to lower tier ish power five program going to take a chance on him as a head coach. Um, I'm still saying power five. I've, I haven't fully switched <laughs> the power four vernacular yet. I'm not, I'm not just not quite ready. I, I experimented a couple weeks ago. I just, I'm not there. Um, so I like, I don't, I don't know that the thought really entered my head a whole lot during this season that, uh, Oh, one, one Avenue to Ryan Grubb leaving Washington would be, Kalen DeBoer is still the head coach at Washington, but Ryan Grubb gets an, an NFL coordinator job. I did think Kalen DeBoer was going to get NFL interest as a head coach. Um, and maybe he would have, I don't mean, I don't know, but that I, it, it, it occurs to me now that they could have lost Grubb anyway. Yeah. I, I would have been, if, if DeBoer had stayed, I think I probably would have been a little bit surprised if Grubb had ended up staying though. The fact they went to the national championship game, Led to that. I did not see a scenario where he was going to end up as an NFL coordinator. And the question about where this leads, I would think, is a definitive yes. I think this makes him more attractive for any head coaching job because it is no longer going to be a question of is he just running DeBoer's offense. It's it's his. It's going to be his offense, and this increases the potential paths to a head coaching job because maybe he really does fit in the NFL and maybe he really does like that. And that just makes that a potential stop. I mean, the being the offensive coordinator on a staff with a defensive minded head coach is, is, is the way you progress toward being a head coach. I don't think this eliminates the, the, how attractive he would be for an open head coaching job at the college level. And it opens up potential opportunities in the NFL. Um, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm really fascinated to see what happens. And the fact that Scott Huff ended up going up, going with him certainly speaks. They've, they've got a lot of parts on that offense. I mean, you have a top 10 pick at left tackle. You have a third year right tackle who was banged up, had a bad knee, but they really liked an Abe Lucas. You've got a couple of running backs who are second round picks who look pretty good. DK Metcalf, We'll see what happens with Tyler Lockett and then whatever they do at quarterback, which I'd be very surprised if it's not Geno Smith. It'll be really interesting to see how, how that offense does under Grubb. What do you think he ordered at Dino's? <laughs> that was something. That was one of the two big <laughs> internet stories you missed. The first was the, the first was the, the, <laughs> which I don't know how I feel about the, the posting of, I mean, it's certainly, absolutely fair game for the UW commenter who posted it. I believe his name was Kyle Baldwin. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, that's, that's just how it goes. The, the, the second part of that though, is like, it is a little bit of a paparazzi. Like we're getting a little more paparazzi involved. You got to mind your P's and Q's. You can't just go out somewhere for a, for, for a pop. 
yeah i mean how how secretive how how paramount was confidentiality to john schneider if they were having a beer at dino's with their new offensive coordinator with the head coach there you know yeah. like It'd be one thing if it's uh, maybe another executive or someone who's not John Schneider. And, but I mean, even like Ryan Grubb, Ryan Grubb's so recognizable. He was so out in front, right? Like he was, he was always talking to the media and like he, you know, kind of became a, a household name and a star as an offensive coordinator at Washington. So yeah, that's just the, the thought that those, at least those three people, I know there was a fourth one with them, but I, I don't, I didn't recognize him. Maybe he's, you their, knew he's their linebackers coach, uh, the new okay. linebackers coach. So, but. but three very, the two most recognizable non players in the organization mm-hmm. now meeting with um, the University of Washington's highly successful offensive coordinator at Dino's during like peak dinner hours. Um, yeah, some, someone's going to pick up on that. The the other big internet story, and I don't know if you you've you followed this from afar, was the there was a report from down in I think is a reporter that covers Tucson, and I'm not trying to crap on anybody else's reporting, but he had said that he heard that Jed Fish interviewed for the UCLA job, and then that started an entire firestorm that included an angry internet response from Jed's agent. Yes. Um <laughs> I, I asked I asked somebody at Washington if that was true and the response uh quite immediately came uh no. So it's those and this is just my general approach or thoughts on those. There is nothing trying to describe or or report on negotiations or conversations or interviews is one of the most foolhardy things you can try to do because mm-hmm. the the different layers of what constitutes a conversation or an interview or a polite response or due diligence or an actual trying to quantify that is in my opinion an absolute fool's errand and you end up you when you try to do it you end up advancing some someone else's agenda because you can always you can always hide how serious something actually was and something totally innocuous can always be made to look like it was actually actually substantial but it made absolutely zero sense at any point in time the idea that jed fish would ever be a candidate to leave washington to go to ucla that is just insane yeah. Um, you know, he, he worked there and I know I seemed to enjoy Los Angeles and those sort of things. So like there's an association, but, um, as much as that guy talks very bluntly about money and the impact of money in college athletics and how you need money for staff pool and money to pay players and money for resources. Um, even though they're getting a full share, UCLA, not, not exactly the, uh, an ideal match for somebody who is as, pragmatic as jeff fish seems to be about what is required to win in college football these days so i um i, I did get a kick out of the the dinner photo then posted from uh cabo so whatever resort he and his wife were at it in in cabo san lucas look like look like jed needs to hit up some sunscreen man i'm worried about him as as someone who is <laughs> as someone who is prone to roast i was I, I was a little bit worried about him i would i would flip it to uh christian and say that given that UCLA just sat around for a couple weeks daring Chip Kelly to quit so they didn't have to pay him the $8.5 million. I'm not sure if they were going to be doing somersaults to 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 come <laughs> up with the money to pay the buyout to give Jed Fish the contract that he got from Washington and presumably a raise on that. I, it didn't make sense from any any side and was something very firmly... Uh, when you when you end up trying to write about somebody and how far things got with something you end up you you're just you're just bound to be doing someone else's business so for years when media would do their pack you know ranking the the best coaches in the pack 12 and the big 10 and the big 12 we went through these cycles of like david shaw chris peterson and kyle whittingham were kind of mm-hmm. at the top and then Peterson stepped away and Shaw fell off and it was like, okay, Kyle Whittingham's the pretty much the best coach in the Pac-12 now and Jonathan Smith climbed the rankings and Mike Leach came and went and it's like, okay, 
where are we at now as as Washington enters the Big Ten? These schools have all scattered. Washington fans are going to have to get used to a whole new, for the most part, menu of of coaches standing on the opposite sideline. Jim Harbaugh just left Michigan. And Ryan Day has won a ton of games, but hasn't been able to beat Michigan the last couple of years. Hasn't won a championship. Um, I, I'm I was I was put onto this idea by scrolling through um, another writer's ranking of the top coaches in the Big Ten um, heading into 2024 post realignment. And, and this particular person had Dan Landing number one, um, which got me thinking that, you know, if if Kalen DeBoer hadn't left Washington, would he be the clear number one on these lists this season? I'm not saying like on the whole, any school in the conference would definitely take him over their current guy, um, although I think many would. But, uh, you know, I, I was I was stepping off the elevator um to get, go back up to the press box after the Pac-12 championship game. And another national writer who I know it would kind of turn to me and was like, so is Kalen DeBoer a top five coach in college football now? Like hey, where, where's he going to land? Because I mean, having Washington at, at the time, 13 and 0, obviously wound up being 14 and 0 and, and in a national championship. I mean, having Washington in that position in year two would have, would have vaulted him up there. And it, now it's, you know, the fact that he's gone has me thinking, well, where is Jed Fish's place in these rankings and and who even is Number one, who is that top tier in the Big Ten now? So the top tier in the Big Ten, Lincoln Riley, Ryan Day. Is James Franklin there? I would say so. And even Dan though he Lanny. hasn't done it, he hasn't yeah. done it at his Big Ten school yet. I would, I would put Luke Fickle up there. I mean. I feel like he was as respected as anybody coming out of Cincinnati. And that was viewed as like a, a really great hire for Wisconsin. Yeah. So I would, I would say the four that I'm pretty firm on would be Lanning day, Franklin and Riley, I think are the top four. And then I think you'd debate on five. I'm not uh, sure. I'm not sure who you put one there. Yeah, I, because there's it, it pretty clearly would have been Jim Harbaugh. Yeah, after this season, but it um, can't it can't be Franklin, right? Because Franklin's Penn State team has been good, but has has never gotten over the hump. Like that, that would be I would I would say this that they they've 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 made all the noises and sounds and looked like being legit, but they they can't get over the hump and win the big games. And Are we saying that the biggest knock on Ryan Day is that he he hasn't beaten Michigan? Yeah, the biggest knock is that they owned Michigan and then they didn't. And he's he he's now kind of the pack the college football equivalent of the best golfer to never win a major. I would think that he's the the talent that they put in to the NFL and the draft, the way that they recruit, but he hasn't he hasn't really done it yet. Um so I, Ryan Day is Phil Mickelson. Is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. I, I realize Phil Mickelson has now has now won uh, yes. several majors, but there was a long time when he had. And there's because that's the way that's the way he's talked about, right? Like even in the the game that they ended up winning against Notre Dame uh, before Notre Dame had ten dudes on the field at the end, when it looked like they were going to blow it, there was. I mean, the 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 reaction was on their second to last possession was Ryan Day is going to like have a lot to answer for after this game. Like Ryan day runs a great offense, but makes terrible play calls in the clutch. I, I feel that that is, that's kind of the national sort of storyline slash question about him. Yeah, definitely. I, I guess I'm thinking day versus landing. Mm-hmm. If the biggest knock on Ryan day is that he's now, not been able to get over the Michigan hump a couple times, but he's 56 and eight as Ohio state's head coach. Why is what makes Dan Lanning's resume superior when he is and three against his chief rival um, and was a nine plus point favorite in two of those games, including a conference championship game has not won a conference championship in two seasons 
at Oregon, despite mm-hmm. having what I think most people would agree was on paper the most talented roster in the conference the last two seasons. Um, look, I think Oregon should be super high on Dan Lanning, should be thrilled he's their head coach, should be thrilled they got through this ridiculous hiring cycle without him ever really being involved in any of the openings. He very publicly shot down any connection between him and Texas A&M and then between him and Alabama, whether there was mutual interest or not, who cares? He was out front saying, I'm not going anywhere. And then he didn't go anywhere and he's still there. So like, that's great for Oregon and they should be super happy about that. I just, I I'd, I'd have a hard time putting landing ahead of Ryan day when the biggest knock on day could also be levied against Lanning and he, you know, I mean, I don't mean he's only been a head coach for two seasons, so he, he hasn't had the opportunity to have the same track record as Ryan Day. But like he has been head coach and he's won fifty six games. It's not like they've been they've been awful. But I, if you if you showed any Ohio State fan a ranking of the best coaches in the Big Ten that had Ryan Day at number one, like you'd probably get some Ohio State fans going, "No, he's not. What are you talking about? I know like, we were eleven and zero. We could you know we lost to Michigan last year. Like what the hell? Yeah, he he hasn't." Dan Lanning essentially hasn't had the time to build that sort of <laughs> that nucleus of people who think that he's just not going to be the guy that gets him over the hump. Whereas Day's been there long enough and had that level of success, and then they've watched Michigan pass them. That's the biggest thing is that you've Ohio State fans have watched Michigan pass them, and that is a much different feeling than Oregon fans who as much as you want to say, and as a Washington fan, I want to sort of gloat about the fact that landing hasn't been able to beat Washington. Those are two programs. Washington has won two and even really three pretty close games that, and, and the way that landing recruits, and then you throw in the idea that he's certainly making all the sounds of a guy that, isn't looking to go somewhere else that does truly see Oregon as a destination for, for himself. And if he believes that, I mean, they're going to be able to pay him enough money that he can always stay there and the recruits they're landing. I don't know. I, if you gave me a choice between the two of them, I'm taking landing. If you said you get one of those two guys to coach your program, Ryan day or Dan Lanning, I'm taking landing. Do you think Ohio state would, uh, would make that trade? Straight up. I mean, like if you if you pulled if you pulled Ohio State fans and said, "Who would you rather have as your head coach tomorrow, Ryan Day or Dan Lanning?" Like, how many do you think would say Dan Lanning? I think it would be a majority, but I think that reflects sort of the the unrest of the and and the standards of Ohio, Ohio State. I think they'd be choosing with their heart, not their heads. I, I don't. I, mean, I think it's entirely shaded by they'd be mad because they they they've lost these last three to Michigan. There's the idea too that like the Ohio state job is like the one in the country that's kind of coach proof. They're just like, it doesn't mean they, they've had some elite coaches, I'm you know, obviously, but it, they've just never been bad. They've ne- like never been like down. They've never gone through a prolonged cycle where, Oh, like we all know Ohio state's the blue blood, but man, like it's been a while since they like, they've just always won at a super high level. And so, yeah, I mean, 11 and two, 11 and two, 11 and two, just like, isn't good enough because you know who wouldn't who wouldn't win 11 game you know who 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 couldn't go 11 and 2 at ohio state so do, do you think do you think ryan day's rosy cheeks get held against him and the kind of the sharp cheekbones of dan lanning that he looks just a little more intimidating i don't know do you Maybe. think i'm biased it I sounds kinda, like you've got some inherent bias i i do i kind of think ryan day looks like a happy snowman like with these big red cheeks. <laughs> he seems like a happy snowman. Where would you have put Lincoln Riley before last? So that's the other thing. Like Lincoln Riley's kind of for very different reasons. I feel like Lincoln Riley is kind of in the Ryan Day zone where look at his track record and it's it's impossible to say that like, you know, 14 or 15 coaches in this league are are better than him. 
um, and that he's not top three, top four. And he, he is. But, you know, if you went and touted Lincoln Riley as, as like the top coach in the Big Ten to USC fans, you'd also get some pushback that's like, what are you talking about? We, we were, did you watch us last year? Like the guy hasn't figured out defense. He never figured out defense at Oklahoma. He's carried by these Heisman winning quarterbacks. Um, the even even when they pulled out all these close wins and were you know game away from the playoff uh two years ago they choked and then they collapsed in the their cotton bowl and um there's i don't know like there's there are few coaches entering the big 10 in 2024 who aren't either brand new in their first year Mm -hmm. or kind of on you know even if you wouldn't call it the hot seat are are not in like a great place with their fan base so i guess to your point i mean dan i think dan lanning is in a great place with his fan base i don't think ducks fans are to the point yet where they're like totally holding against him that he hasn't beaten washington um it's the next frontier i don't know that like if they were to beat washington in 2024 it would be viewed as you know mission accomplished we'll see I mean, what kind of team the Huskies have and and what kind of roster they roll out. But um, in terms of like fan satisfaction with their head coach, maybe maybe you'd put Luke Fickle up there. It wasn't like an amazing year one for him, but he's he's done a lot right and recruited at a high level. I think people are feeling pretty good about the direction of the program there. At least I I would be um, willing to 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 bet you know buy some stock in Luke Fickle winning at Wisconsin. So um, I don't know, should should Jonathan Smith be higher on that list i think this particular list and obviously it's just one person's opinion this is badger's wire uh had him number eight behind the uh the five we've mentioned plus um matt rule uh oh god really kurt and kirk ferentz oh no <laughs> i would not have matt really? rule that high where's jed fish on that list he's 11th ah see i have fish I'm not going to argue if somebody wants to put fickle above fish, but I'd say fish is fish is sure as hell ahead of Kirk Ferentz. You think that's, so? Yeah. Yeah. Wait, he won 10 games at Arizona and he's coming to a Washington team that certainly is going to have some, some assets and, and, and being has gotten back up on its feet sooner than anybody could have hoped, given the the debacle that happened for, for Jimmy Lake, Kirk Ferentz, they produce tight ends and really good defensive players, but they never have a good enough offense to really matter. Am I wrong yeah. about that? I was talking to, to somebody's earlier today and the way I said, Iowa is a super legit program that simply refuses to score points yeah this has kind of been their their elite defensively yes. always are going to be one of the nation's best defenses um but i mean we go back to uh we'll go back to 2015 because they um they won went undefeated in in conference play won their division and played in the rose bowl that year these are their win total since 2015 12 8 8 9 10 6 which was the 2020 season that's a six and two record 10 8 and 10 so I mean they they win a lot of games. It's a tough place to play. You you are not going to roll over them unless you're an elite, you know, Michigan Ohio State type of program. Um you're going to feel it even if you win. They're going to they're going to bring you down to their level and they're going to make you play their game and it's um it's a great atmosphere at their stadium. Washington goes there this season. Um they just don't score. They cannot figure out the uh the offense. So I I don't know like I, a head coach who's been there for as long as he has. I mean, his first year was 1999. Yes. Um, to turn that into a consistent eight, nine, 10 game winner. Like that's, yeah, that's pretty impressive, right? I, there's been a lot, been a lot of strife along the way and, and, you know, much of it, uh, um, perhaps attributable to the head coach himself. And, and, you know, maybe it's yeah, anytime a head coach is, is at a, a school that long, there's going to be a faction of the fan base that wonders whether they, you know, it's time for new leadership and whether they should move on. But um, I don't know. I mean, I, I was kind of wondering if he should be higher. They are what they are, which is a team that will consistently get to a bowl game and maybe even a pretty good bowl game and be a great feeder system for NFL teams. 
and they're never going to really contend at a, at a level that matters because they simply don't know how to play offense and don't seem all that interested in figuring out ways to compete that it's, they've got an exceptionally high floor, which is a credit to how good a coach he is, but their ceiling, like they are capped out. They are, they are 10, 10 wins is as good as it gets 10 wins and maybe get into a pretty good bowl game, but that's as good as it's going to get for them. Like they're not, they're not going to matter. Um, Whereas I think that Jed Fish, he, I see a scenario where like, if he was able to recruit at that level at Arizona, like, is there the possibility that they could win? I think there's a, a much higher likelihood that Washington wins a Big Ten championship in the next five years than Iowa does. Because I think, I just don't think that Iowa has that ceiling. Now, if you ask me who's going to average more wins in that time, like, sure, that might end up being Iowa. But <laughs> there's a limit. That At least that's how I see it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't necessarily disagree. I just, uh, and, 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 you know, Iowa doesn't get to uh, dominate the, uh, the JV division anymore with, with no divisions going forward. So that, uh, that helped them get into the conference championship game. Yes. Um, a couple times. It, it's, it's, uh, it's subjective, obviously. Um, I, gosh, I, I, I think if, if, Jed Fish had stayed at Arizona and in year four had put forth a season similar to last year. And um, uh, maybe they win 10 games and play for a big 12 championship or something like that, or end up in a new year's six. Well, I guess the new year's six is the, uh, the playoff going forward. So that's, it'd be a, be a different equation postseason wise. Maybe they, you know, maybe they sneak into the playoff, right? Maybe they, maybe, maybe he gets Arizona into the 12 team playoff. I think, the next hiring cycle, you'd be talking about him as like the name um, for a a power two job, um, and you'd have him you'd have him higher on a, a list like that. If he were going to Washington after a successful twenty twenty four season at Arizona, now he's got four years of head coaching experience under his belt. Two of them very good. He's built a program, um, so got a chance to he got a chance to prove himself by having a, a good year one at, at Washington. Where'd you put Greg Schiano? Yeah, so I was I, I was thinking about that. Um, they had a really he, good defense. This list has year. him fourteenth, which Ooh, might be low. a little. I don't know. I mean, is Bielma he had them bouncing him? back last year? Like I, I'm looking at Washington's Big Ten schedule, their first their first Big Ten schedule, and at first glance, this was before DeBoer left. But at first gla- glance, I'm like, okay, well, that's that's got to be a five and zero start, right? Like they. No excuses for losing any of their non-conference games. They open with Northwestern at home, and then they go to Rutgers. Um, but I don't know, take a little longer look at Rutgers. They they turned around last year. They gave uh, Ohio State a game. Shiano yes. um, is obviously a good fit there. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to recruit to that school in that area. And um, that going going back to New Jersey in Week Five next year, this year I guess might not be a. Might not be the cakewalk that Husky fans remember it, and and from uh, from twenty seventeen, the that dude knows how to coach defense. Like there's a you can talk a lot about some of the interpersonal skills or the the sort of my way or the highway that he imposes, but he absolutely knows how to coach defense, and that was a good defensive team last year. Um, I'd have is 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 he a, is Bielma higher than him then? So this list has Bielema at uh, nine. That's pretty high for Brett Bielema, isn't it? Feels a little high. Feels a I, little I, high. Bielema gives off some some Chip Kelly fumes, where I'm not so sure how much fire in the belly he has left in his run at Wisconsin and at Arkansas. And I'm not I'm I'm not certain that he's not just playing out the strength. That's a tough yeah. place to win at, too. Illinois is a tough place to win at. Um, three and six, five and eight, four and eight, seven and six. So Rutgers last four seasons. Uh, and obviously the, uh, the Rutgers resurgence, uh, of the, of the late, the late 2000s, early 2010s that I think got, uh, got Washington on or got Rutgers on Washington's schedule for those 16, 17 seasons, uh, thinking, Hey, this is a, you know, this will be a nice little, uh, power conference matchup here. Um, he was responsible for that run too. So yeah, look, I mean, I, it, there's a, there's a ceiling there. 
Um, you know, they're probably not ever going to be a playoff team, but, um, you know, they could, they could be one of those programs that you, ugh, you know, maybe, maybe Rutgers is the new, the new Cal for Washington where it's just, there's just always going to be something dumb when they play them because they're just good enough to, <laughs> to stay in it and, and frustrate you. How about the little goober that wears the tie? <laughs> PJ Fleck. Uh-huh. He, he got floated for the UCLA job. I saw that. Um, which I thought was kind of interesting on both ends. Like would, I, I, I feel like based on what's available, that would be a, would have been a win for UCLA if they could hire a, a sitting big 10 head coach. Um, I, and I guess we don't know that he was, but like, I would have been a little surprised um, if he'd been like super interested in that mm-hmm. job. I know like Minnesota is not exactly a, an NIL kingdom either. I'm sure there's limitations there um, that maybe you'd feel like you could overcome uh, coaching in at a, at a big 10 school in Los Angeles instead. Um, but yeah, he, so the big, this list had him, I think right ahead of uh Shiano. I think 13. the kind of coach I've always thought that the kind of coach that thrives at UCLA is the kind of laid back person that it would be fun to play for that. And it's the Terry Donahue, Rick Neuheisel type of that. The, the pitch is that our uniforms are pretty. The weather is gorgeous. You can wear flip flops every day and we'll go play football and have fun. Like that. That's, that's the kind of, that's the kind of MO that's going to succeed. There is that we're not going to put you through all the unnecessary misery like life doesn't have to be hard. You don't have to live where there's cold weather. Like it really has to be someone who leans into that. And 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 wearing a tie to, to work does not really go with that. And I say that as someone who has worn a tie to work unnecessarily for a number of years. You I loved just, the tie. I did. I did. I really I, I, I have I've not worn it regularly since I moved to New York, but I did that that just did not seem to be the cultural fit for me. Christian they talk I didn't think that was a cultural fit uh UCLA should have uh circled back on Rick Neuheisel (laughs) is what I'm hearing there is a little bit of me that was surprised that that didn't work better like there is there is a little bit of me that was surprised that that didn't work better whereas when Jim Mora didn't work there I was not surprised at all I that that did not surprise me at all but I was a little surprised that Rick Neuheisel didn't work out better at UCLA uh, speaking of UCLA, the uh, the number eighteen coach on this ranking is unsurprisingly Deshaun Foster, which I feel like it's kind of where he's got to start, right? Yeah. I mean, he's Kurt Signetti from Indiana, um, number seventeen, replacing uh, Tom Allen. Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's an interesting mix of coaches. I feel like there's maybe, like we said, a distinct top tier, but you could quibble over who's number one. I, I don't know that there's a program entering this post realignment wave in the big 10 for the 2024 season. That is both coached by someone, the fan base universally adores and has lived up to the fan base's expectations for what their program should be. And I, I guess, I guess I've talked myself into Dan Lanning. I don't know. I mean, for, for both of those qualifications, um, he had Oregon right there as a playoff contender up until the Pac-12 championship game last year. They lost uh, two very, very, very close games to uh, a team that went unbeaten into the national title game. Um, and the year before was, uh, you know, they lost three games, but they were, they other than getting blown out by Georgia in their opener, they were, you know, could have convinced themselves they should have won uh, against Washington and Oregon State. So, I don't. I think the the craziness of the hiring cycle has really helped Dan Lanning in the eyes of his fan base too, because like once the season ends and the disappointment of not beating Washington in Vegas kind of dissipates, um, Oregon fans got to kind of uh, revel in the fact that they didn't have to participate in this nervous, you know, hand wringing time and deal with um, someone coming for their coach because he seems like he's committed to Oregon. So that you know maybe that's half the battle. I feel like I've been very complimentary to the Oregon Ducks and Dan Lanning over the course of this discussion. I, I might even go so far as to say that it's like been quasi professional. So I would like to just point out one of the reason 
that duck fans are so happy with Dan landing and he's so well regarded is that they're so used to getting dumped by their coaches that they just really feel good that he's not taking the first thing smoking <laughs> out of town. I, I think they've you're been right. ditched. They've been ditched so frequently and the, the sore feelings from Willie Taggart and Mario Cristobal. They're just happy. He's not leaving. He really likes us. He really, really loves us. And he wants to be here. I think you're going to have to try harder if you're trying to be unprofessional. Like, I just think that's a, I think that's a fair, reasonable take. That's probably true. Like once bitten, twice bitten, thrice bitten, four times shy, man. (laughs) Well, each episode here at the Say Who Say Pod, we have a conversation with Ian McFarland. And his conversation today involves neither donuts nor hamburgers, but it does involve a spot where you can get hot dogs. Here is our weekly conversation with Ian McFarland. Good morning, guys. Hope uh, the week off was good. And Christian, I hope your vacation went well. We were vacationing within a couple miles of each other, though my family just drove home through an atmospheric river, which even Seattleites uh, don't get to experience very often. So hope you got out in time. Um. While you were away, it seems that you picked up some new competition for beat writing at UW football as the uh, paper of record in in Seattle as as a new beat reporter. I won't publicize that person nor that that, uh, paper because this is your domain. But I I think it's interesting for, for the audience to hear what the modern dynamic in a press box is. Do reporters still hang out together on the road? Do is there a divide between mainstream media and internet media? Um, are there their faces that are there every week? Are there randoms in there at any given time? It's not the same cigarette smoking, typewriter tapping, press box that everybody imagines in 2024. So. Very curious what what that dynamic looks like and um, how it's changed for both of you over the the courses of your careers. Uh, Welcome back again. Hope you guys are doing well. Go dogs. Trying to think. I think the last time I was in a press box, Christian, was I think it was pre-pandemic. Really? I think it was January 2020. I went to a playoff game, the Seahawks at Philadelphia, but I think that's the last time I was in a press box. Yeah, it's um, if it's changed, other than, as Ian mentioned, you can't smoke up there anymore. Um, but you were never, I mean, I've, I've been a sports reporter for a while. I was, you were never, I've never seen anybody smoke in a press conference. Yeah, that's probably, box. that's probably going back to like the 60s or 70s. Um, yeah. It, if it's changed, it's just in that there are fewer people um well it's pretty packed for for big games there there are fewer people mm-hmm. covering the team on a regular basis and i've kind of written about that some before like you know the seattle pi doesn't really exist as a a news gathering entity anymore um the everett herald doesn't staff the uw beat when i was in school they had a a writer who traveled to every game the tacoma news tribune doesn't really cover uw anymore you know obviously they used to have uh dating back forever a writer at, at every football and basketball game and for about four years that writer was me um so th- th- there's just you know there are other um online media recruiting sites that have that have popped up you know what i do wasn't a thing a year ago so um on the whole there probably are fewer people there on a daily basis. i mean just in terms of like in the press box at games it's it's pretty much the same crew um there's assigned seats. So, you know, you get, you get used to the people around you and for bigger games, more national people come in. I'd say it's pretty cordial. I mean, I, you know, I don't know that there are any, any feuds or beefs or anything. Um, kind of a loner on the road these days, I guess. Um, you know, not, uh, don't have any issues with anybody or anything, but I don't know. I'm, you know, when I, when I'm on the road, I'm trying to sleep for as long as I possibly can. Not something, you know, I'm not, not being woken up by a, by a toddler or anything. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I, I'm, 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 I'm trying, I'm trying to get some sleep in and I'm trying to find the nearest in and out burger usually. 
Um, and that's my priority rather than, so I don't, I don't know if that answers Ian's question or not. Before kids, before, before lovely Ruby, would you be, would you be more likely to go out the night before a game? Like everybody travels. And I guess that that's like, there's less of a traveling contingent now. Would you be more likely to? Yeah, definitely. I'd say so. Um, and some, some of that's, and it's, it's related, I guess, to being a parent, but I like, I can't stay mm-hmm. awake past 10 o'clock anymore. Yeah. You know, like it's a struggle. Like when I cover night games, basically that's the only time I'm, <laughs> I'm able to stay up that late. Cause like I, I have to, um, but that's a, that's a factor too. It's just kind of like, I'm, I'm kind of introverted to begin with. Um, so when I go on the road, it's just kind of like, all right, this is my time to just be alone and decompress and. And also, like, I, there are people who live in, and this is going to change with them going to the Big Ten, but there are people who live in these cities who I know and, you know, college friends and stuff who, if, you know, if I don't go see them when I'm covering UW at USC or whatever, like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to see them for however long. So, yeah. So I don't have kids. Um, and I would say it probably changed for me in 2017. I stopped drinking. But before that, I would pretty consistently go out the night before. And oftentimes it was with other guys that were, were covering the team or, or people that I knew in town. But I would usually try to arrange an outing. Um, I was really good friends with Eric Williams, who covered the Seahawks for the Tacoma News Tribune. And I was covering the Seahawks for the Seattle Times. And we were really good friends. Um, I really like Eric's. Eric still is one of the people that I've liked working around the most. It is very strange because as a sports reporter, Often the closest thing you have to coworkers work at different places. Um, I was also really good friends with Jerry Brewer, who was a columnist and I would hang out with. Um, we worked at the same paper. It's, it's a, it is a different sort of environment, I think, that has changed as the number of newspapers have, have declined and the, the people that they assign to different, different, different places. But, um, you just, you don't see as many. I've never sensed that much snobbery over whether someone is an online publication or whether they're a print publication. And if that did exist, I really believe that that was gone by 2004, 2005, that it's it, covering a team as a journalist is covering a team as a journalist. Um, and a, hanging out with guys that work at TV, radio and, and print publications. Like that's, that's, that's always happened. Um, I, I do miss, there used to be occasionally flare ups. Like I once almost saw a fight between two beat writers from the, they, they were both working at the Denver paper. This was when I was covering the Sonics. So this will say how long it was. It used to be, you would file your story by using a phone line to call it in. And it would be similar to a similar mechanism to a fax. Um, but you would, you would log on and use the dial up modem and it would connect and send. And there were on the Sonics press row, there were two phone lines, one that would be used for the Seattle papers. So the Seattle PI, the Seattle times and the Tacoma news tribune had one that you would have to share. And there would be one for the visiting reporters. And in the two Denver papers, there was an, I still remember the overtime game um, because Earl Boykins, who was, if you remember, was famously short. Uh, I believe he was from one of the directional Michigan schools. Earl scored 15 points in overtime and it tied an NBA record. And the, the, the gentleman who was covering, I'm going to change the names. The gentleman who was covering it for the Rocky Mountain News was, was typing the story as he was logged in. And the general rule, and this, this was at all arenas, you could use the phone line to send. You could not be typing your story when you were on the phone line. Like it was for sending only. You could not log on and essentially squat on the line. And so he's typing. And I hear the reporter from the Denver Post saying, you're typing. You're typing. And the guy's still, I'm almost done. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. The guy from the Denver Post takes his laptop, runs to the media room, which was in the sort of the layer there was a, a half stairway that went up and you went through it was like a mezzanine layer went in there he comes down as we're waiting to get access to the locker rooms and he is furious and he's like that's that's the fucking second time that you sat there and typed on the phone line you i'm so sick of your bull 
And the reporter from the Rocky Mountain News turns around and goes, well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to vote for you for PBWA president with language like that. <laughs> you, I don't need your vote. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was the it was the funniest thing I've ever seen. It's impossible to tell a story of a press box squabble without it just sounding like the most pettiest thing of all time. They are like there's there, there's never any real reason for two people to go at it like that. <laughs> to the to the Denver Post reporters credit, I do want he called and apologized to the Sonics the next day and tried to smooth everything over. And I think everybody generally understands that di- deadlines are a fraught thing, but it did. Yeah, you can't describe a a press box uh, beef without it sounding just horribly juvenile. I will say one of the uh, one of the fact one of the factors in my like declining uh, going out days on the road is that Adam Jude was was really the 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 top rallier. I mean, he'd you know, he'd make sure people got together and um, like to go out and and might uh, might tackle a person or two. If he, yeah, if he had he's, enough. he's got a reputation as a tackler. Yeah. I believe it was 2007. So yeah, it would have been December 31st, 2007, turning to 2008. I rode home in a trunk uh, of Jerry Brewer's rental car while in Green Bay. Wow. Thanks for the question, Ian. It was pretty good. Sent us off the rails here. Uh, you got anything else? I just either, you know, nobody's gone in the portal and, and they haven't added anybody to the roster and no coaches have left i just kind of you know feel sort of empty like i yeah we all were waiting for the news to stop and now the news has stopped and it's it you know i just want more we'll have to do another coaches draft maybe we'll look at the the who who is the uh, of the remaining is it going to be the pack the pack two are they just going to be the big west what's it going to be called next year do we know i think they're just going to operate as the pack 12 which uh, which weird. George Klyovkov is no longer in charge of, by the way. Yeah, sh- yeah, big big shock there, right? That he was he was shown the door. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll talk to you next week. The dead motherfucker. Oh no no no! I ran through that bull junk you wrote, done. I ran through that. I sifted through all that. Yeah.